You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Welcome. I have a special guest today. His name is Robert Leonard. He's a corporate finance manager and host of two shows on the TIP network, which if you're not familiar, they host the show called We Study Billionaires. It's the number one ranked stock investing podcast in the world. They have over a million downloads a month. Guests on the TIP podcast network have included names like Tony Robbins, Howard Marks, and just last week they had Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank on. Also on their list of guests, I should say, is your not-so-humble host, the Miggity Man Overseas. (laughs) Why did my mouth just do that? Probably because the first, no, the second CD I ever bought was the Miggity Miggity Mac Daddy. Any guesses? Criss Cross, that's right. He'll make you jump, jump. I wonder if they still wear their pants backwards. In case you're wondering if I have a diverse interest in music, my first CD was Nirvana with the naked baby on the front. I'd be curious to know what yours was. Send me a DM on Instagram, please, or Twitter, at man underscore overseas. Let me know, what was the first CD you ever purchased? I wasn't a guest on the TIP Network's Billionaire Show, but TIP has a real estate investing podcast, which Robert hosts along with Millennial Investing, and I was on their real estate show. Robert's an excellent host. So the focus of our show today is going to be investing A few days ago, I was walking around the neighborhood with a buddy of mine, and we were among some massive multi-million dollar houses. And he said to me, do you realize how much our capitalistic system is set up for the rich to get richer? And the comment was out of character for him. And so I kind of looked at him sideways and said, well, yeah, under capitalism, the rich tend to get richer and you need money to make money. That's a cliche for a reason. He said, no, I'm talking about specifically, do you know how many deals and opportunities that these people have that those with less means don't have access to? What he was talking about was the fact that you can't get into certain deals unless you're what we call an accredited investor. Actually, that's a term used around the world. But there are different requirements for what constitutes an accredited investor, depending on which country you're in. An accredited investor in America is someone who has special status under financial regulation laws. To be an accredited investor, it means that you have a net worth of at least a million dollars, excluding your primary residence. So you may have heard of a high net worth individual. Basically the same thing. It's a term used typically by those in the financial services industry to designate someone whose assets are worth at least a million dollars, excluding their home. The term very high net worth individual typically applies to someone with a net worth of at least $5 million. And I say typically because not only do these terms mean different things in different countries, but you'll get into, let's say, a real estate syndication. Well, the SEC has different rules for whether or not you can invest in things like real estate syndications. There's something called a 506B, which applies to non-accredited investors. You have to have income and the financial wherewithal to make investment decisions, maybe a financial advisor helping you, but you can get into those deals. They call them friends and family deals. 
or there's a 506C, which is more formalized, and it's only for accredited investors. One of the main differences is for a 506B, you can't advertise that you're seeking funds from people. But if you had, not even on Facebook, but if you had a 506C situation, then you can market for investors in your fund. An accredited investor for purposes of a 506C real estate syndication is $200,000 a year in income for each of the past two years, spouse included, plus at least a million dollars in net worth, excluding the value of your home. So it's interesting once you get into these more obscure sort of investments that there are requirements. And that's what my buddy was referring to, just that you can't get into certain types of investments like VC or hedge funds, angel investing, those sorts of things, unless you have a certain level of wealth already, usually. Not just anybody can get into the deals. I can't tell you how many times since I was on bigger, bigger pockets, people have assumed my net worth. If you heard my guest appearance on that show or watched it on YouTube, you may have heard me say that I own five rental properties free and clear, each worth about 150000 Well, add that up, multiply by five, you've, you've got 750000 So since then, I've caught several people assuming that, that I have a $750,000 net worth. And it's always weird when it happens. Like this one guy who ever so subtly told me that he heard me on bigger pockets. Then the next time I ran into him, he mentioned how when he's my age, he'll have a much bigger net worth than 750000 <laughs> Of course, I'm thinking, you know, how'd you come up with that number? Didn't realize we were at the urinal and, and having a pissing contest, but he was in a pissing contest that I was entered into one that I didn't realize I was a part of. Anyway. I thought that conversation with my friend was apropos of what we're going to discuss here today. And I, I share the bigger pocket story because sometimes it can be beneficial to share your net worth, your actual net worth with your friends because they may, may be privy to a deal that you wouldn't know of otherwise. And they may exclude you thinking that you don't have the prerequisite net worth to be able to take part in a deal. So when you hear guys like, Tim Ferriss, Chris Saka, Naval Ravikant, those guys who, who made 300x their money on Uber, they're angel investors making sizable bets on startups with the understanding that many, if not most, are not going to make any money. Today, Robert and I discuss his investing strategy and what he's learned from some of the best, most brilliant investors in the world. We talk about a few of the individual stocks in his portfolio, his admiration of Warren Buffett, his chance at playing a shark with Mr. Wonderful himself, whether Snowflake is a stock he intends to purchase now that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has invested $250 million in the software company, how Robert became such an excellent communicator, and of course, we do fun questions at the end. Please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Robert Leonard. Robert, excited to have you on, buddy. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brad. I'm excited to be here. I believe you are one of the sharpest young investing minds out there. Oh, thank and, you. You're too, you're too kind. Well, it's true. And since you're also a great interviewer, I'm going to steal a question that, I've, that I hear you ask your guests, which is, for those listening who are unfamiliar with you, 
Can you please share a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I tell part of my story going back to as young as my early high school days, because I think it's interesting and it sets me apart a little bit from other traditional investors. So I grew up racing motocross. That was kind of my background. No intentions of doing anything investing. Didn't even plan on going to college or anything like that. No one in my family ever went to college. I'm the fast forward. I'm the first one in my family to ever go to college. So never was really on my radar. I was doing pretty well in motocross. And that was really my plan. I expected to just kind of go professional. I was doing well enough that that was a very real possibility for me. And so that was really it. And then when I was about 14 or 15, you can turn pro at 16, uh, about 14 or 15, my dad kind of put the kibosh on that and I was no longer allowed to race. And so I kind of was like, well, what do I do now? And I stumbled onto a Facebook ad about day trading and about getting rich overnight. And <laughs> so, you know, being a 14 year old who wanted to be rich, that kind of sucked me in. And I started to do a little bit of research. And thankfully, I was able to realize that, hey, this probably isn't realistic. You know, this is probably more of a scam than anything. And so, thankfully, I didn't waste any money. I didn't spend any money on a course and I didn't lose any money day trading or anything like that. But uh, that did lead me to Warren Buffett. And from there, that's where I just kind of fell in love with investing, found my passion for investing. Uh, Warren Buffett says that you can explain value investing to somebody and they either get it or they don't. It either clicks with them or they, it doesn't. And for me, it just did. And so from there, I kind of just dove into everything investing related. Got me into podcasts, which is kind of parlayed into what I'm doing today. And it's really just kind of kicked off my journey for everything that I ended up doing in my life. I ended up going to college, studying finance, got my undergrad in, in finance to study investing, got my MBA, also doing the same thing. And so today... Just still studying investing and, and super passionate about it. Cool. I want to talk about your investing and your affinity for Buffett, which I have too, and value investing. But first, let's talk about your podcasting because I just listened to your episode with Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. Congratulations. It's in my top five interviews I've ever listened to. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I think it's important to point out too that I've learned a lot from your podcast. It's called Millennial Investing, which would imply that it's only for millennials. It's not. I'm 40 years old. I've learned just as much from your podcast as any other investing podcast. So you must host more than one show, correct? Two shows, yep. Okay, so I was on the... Real estate show. Okay, so you have a millennial investing real yep, estate show? Nope. So I have the Millennial Investing Show, which is stock investing and personal finance for people between 20 and like 38 or 40. And then the real estate show is open really to any age group. It's not specific to any demographic. It's just for newer real estate investors. Okay. So that Kevin O'Leary episode was so impressive. He was hilarious. Like when he talked about his kids not getting his money, <laughs> he's worth like $400 million. But he said, I don't know what I'm going to do with my money when I die. I might give it to a cat. <laughs> yeah, that's Kevin. Just, <laughs> yeah. Or when you said wealthy people aren't wearing fancy clothes, he told you, you're lucky I'm wearing anything. <laughs> yeah, you should have seen him. I, obviously, I could see him. Uh, I had video on with him and he was wearing just like a battered t-shirt and like a sweatshirt. I think he said in the in the interview that he got one from Mark Cuban and one from Jimmy Fallon and he's wearing an old pair of jeans and he truly was. I like that. This became popular, it seems like, in the last 10 or 15 years, 10 years. Yep. with Google having the culture Facebook, that you wear yeah. flip-flops uh, flip to work and Zuckerberg wearing the hoodies. 
I was, was say Zuckerberg it, is really what I think tipped it off. Yeah. And I worked for a tech startup and we were flip-flops to work. Also, Barack Obama, it was said, would wear the same suit every day and that reduces decision f- fatigue, which for somebody who makes a, a lot of decisions, that makes sense. Kevin O'Leary does the same thing. You mentioned that. I think he wears one, one suit. People who wear Hermes belts typically are not the wealthy folks out there. If you need to display your $5,000 handbag in your Instagram photo, you're probably not wealthy. Those aren't wealthy people aren't the ones doing that. But the episode was also informative and educational. You ask great questions like, what do you tell a a millennial who gets joy from their $4, $5 coffee every day? Then you were talking about his his new app, which is an investing app. You said, what do you tell those people who get joy from their coffee but need to be setting aside $100 a month? This speaks to the fact that success in personal finance is mostly behavioral and small decisions that you make. But he was so skilled at taking your question and answering it exactly as he wanted to answer it. Like you can tell he's the the perennial seller. Like he would, he would go into a narrative that he wanted to tell. So even if he was talking about whatever, he would say, well, I was talking to my, my secretary at, what is it, What is the company called? Stock, Beanstalks. Beanstalks. Yeah. He's like, I was talking to my secretary at Beanstalks. And then he would paint a picture of instead of taking your money and throwing it behind the barn and setting it on fire, you know, using imagery, which is persuasive. All of that, if you're a student of communication at all, it was so masterful. And, and there's a reason that he's almost half a billionaire and, and has all this, this success on television. And he talked about the importance of communication and being concise, that you, you must be able to deliver your product pitch in 90 seconds or less. I, I loved hearing that from him. And then you were able to put him on the spot and ask him, like what differentiates your product? And when you did that, it made me feel like I was a shark and you were another shark that was asking him questions. I just loved it, dude. I loved it. What was your biggest takeaway from that interview? Yeah, thank you. I, I did kind of feel like a shark on that. I, I wanted to push him even more because I, I like what he's doing with the app, but I wanted to push him and because I know how he would be if that app was on, on Shark Tank or a product like it. So I was trying to not replicate him, but I, I think similarly, I watched a lot of Shark Tank and so I, I wanted to ask him, what makes you different? You know, what, how are you going to be successful in this market? Uh, but, but really, my biggest takeaway was some, not necessarily something that I didn't already know, but it's just the fact that people really need to just be saving for investing. You know, however you have to do it, you, just, you need to be investing, you know, regardless of the amount, regardless of how you do it, whether you pick up a side hustle or, or you cut your coffee, coffee or whatever it is you decide to do, you need to find a way to invest at least 100 bucks a month. You know, and I, and I agree with that. Whatever that number is, $50, $150, whatever it is, you got to be able to invest $100 a week or a month or something along those lines. Absolutely. How did you become such a skilled communicator? A professional communications class in college. And I appreciate that because I don't think I'm necessarily super skilled at it, but I definitely think I'm getting better. So uh, I'm a, an accountant by trade, finance guy by trade. We're not typically your most fluent speakers or you know, talented at it. And I was forced to take professional communications in college. I thankfully had an amazing, amazing professor, probably one of my favorite professors all of college. And that course just did really, really well for me. I 
can speak in front of people now, no problem. And of course, the podcast, I would probably argue that the podcast has been equally as valuable, if not more valuable. But my professional communication class was probably the first thing. But when you start talking to these folks like Kevin O'Leary, Jesse Itzler, Matt Higgins, you know, Lewis Howes, Robert Kiyosaki, you know, all these guys, you got to learn how to talk and you got to do it quick because you don't get these opportunities multiple times to talk to these people. And so if you're going to do it, you can't screw it up. And I mean, you just got to show up to the opportunity. And I, I talk about this of how when you're playing sports, a lot of times, if you're playing a team that's worse than you, you play down to their level. If you're playing to a team that's better than you, you play up to their level. And I think for me, I've kind of done that with podcasting. You know, if you go back and listen to my first few episodes, they were not great. Uh, and I think I've progressively gotten better. I think I have a lot of room to grow still. But I think every time I meet with somebody new, they level me up a little bit. My average skill level keeps going up and up. And that's where I am today. What from that class resonates most? What was the biggest takeaway that you're able to apply to your podcasting? I don't remember specifically how she did it, but she just gave you the confidence to be able to speak in front of people. Like I would never get in front of a class and just speak openly about something and be confident in it. But she had techniques and all these different strategies that just made you feel confident and comfortable and willing to be able to do that. And then the more you do it, and then that's really the hardest part is getting started, whether it's real estate investing, stock investing, whatever it is, professional communications. You got to do it. And as you do it, it gets easier and easier and easier. And so the first speech that she forced me to do was horrible and I hated doing it. But that one was a little bit harder than the next one. The next one was a little bit easier. And the next one was a little bit easier and easier and easier. And today it's you know second nature. As part of my prep for any episode, I let the guests know not to make this an infomercial. And the reason I do that is because when I was on a big podcast, I was told not to turn it into an infomercial about my products or services. I noticed Kevin O'Leary mentioned his product probably 38 times during the episode. Is that something that would have turned you off had he not been so famous? Yeah, I probably wouldn't have aired the episode or I would, wow. have, edited, I would have edited a lot more out if it wasn't Kevin O'Leary. Interesting. Politicians probably receive the most media training of anyone. And it's this ability to dodge questions, I think, where if they get a question they don't like, they'll say something like, look, Robert, what most people are concerned about is jobs. And I talked to a lady in New Hampshire just last week, and she was telling me this. And I noticed that Kevin O'Leary just had that political type skill. I was just so impressed with it. But then I was getting kind of perturbed, like, dude, stop mentioning your product. This is getting crazy. I'll bet you Robert's letting this go because you're famous. So you can get away with more when you're famous, I guess. But yeah, and I edited a bit out too. Oh, did you? Yeah. So I wanted to take more, but it was it was tough. But yeah, I mean, you're right. He definitely did did push it a little bit harder than than I would have liked. But when you get a shark, I've had actually a shark on the show before. Um, Matt Higgins, he was a shark. He's a guest shark. But nonetheless, when you get a shark from Shark Tank and and Mr. Wonderful, you kind of just roll with the punches and go with it. Absolutely. My favorite part of the episode was by far two minutes in when he had just said that he sold his company for $4.2 billion. And he talks about what he's up to now, which is helping young entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And he said, it's not about money. People think it's about money. It's not. It has nothing to do with money. It is all about personal freedom. And it got me fired up. Yeah, that fits right in for you. Oh, God. Yeah. 
Is that what you're investing for? Is that the reason that that you're doing it? Yeah, I'm not sure if you and I talked about this before, but growing up my whole life, I always wanted I was known as like the the guy that wanted to just be really rich. And, you know, it goes as far as if you're are you familiar with superlatives in high school? Yeah. Like you're, you know, most successful, prettiest eyes, prettiest smile, you know, whatever. My senior class had those and I was voted most likely to be a billionaire. And that was just kind of like my persona, if you will. I've always been into money, investing, things like that. That was all I cared about. I wanted private jets, private island, private mansions, you know, all these things. And then I had my son and that changed everything. I was like, I don't really care if I have a billion dollars. I don't want to be able to do what I want when I want. And I started to study business more and you start to learn about these guys who are worth billions or even hundreds of millions. And you're like, they don't really have that much time, right? Like they have all the money in the world, but who cares if you can't do what you want with it? You know, you might be able to buy all the things you want, but if you can't actually use them, then what's the point? And so for me, example, I want dirt bikes and, and I want a supercar. Those are like two of the big things I want. What's the point if I can buy all of those, but I can't drive them or ride them? And, and more specifically, I just want to be able to do what, what I want with my friends and family and the ones I love when I want. So I still, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm still probably one of the most goal-oriented, hardworking people you'll ever meet. And I'm still going to be wealthy, but not, I don't need to be to the point of where I'm a billionaire. You know, I want, I'd rather have a little bit more free time and a little less money than have more money and less time. Yeah. Do it for the options because you give yourself an opportunity to either go ride motocross in the afternoon or I feel like I've given myself an opportunity to be super dad when my baby comes along and spend the time with the baby that my dad maybe didn't get to spend with me because he was out conquering the world in order to provide provisioning for the family. It's a powerful statement. And I, I love that he started with that and I was not expecting it. Yeah. I wonder if he believes it wholeheartedly or if, <laughs> or if not, but yeah, it, it is a good statement and I'm glad he did say it, but just knowing how he is in terms of, of investing on, on the tank and everything like that, I wonder if he fully wholeheartedly believes it or not. But you know, during the video, he was at his lake house with his family. That's so, right. And he said so. that he tries to involve his family doing like a show and tell of different products for Shark Tank. And if his kids really like a product, then that gives him yep. an inkling like, hey, this is probably something worthy of investment. Yeah, exactly. So who knows? But I did like that he said that as well. How do you think brokerages going commission-free have changed investing? I think it's changed in a few different ways. So for people that are more involved or sophisticated investors, I, I guess I'd put myself in that category. For me, what it's changed is, historically, I'll have a, a watch list of stocks that I'm interested in, but I wouldn't actually pull the trigger on them until I was ready to really allocate a, a significant por percentage of my portfolio to those positions. However, now what I can do is I can buy one or two shares, get them in my portfolio so that I actually pay attention to them. Because the problem is when they're on your watch list, you're interested, but you're not, you don't have a vested interest. You're not tied to them. So you're not really incentivized to actually research the companies and do what you need to do, do the groundwork to get those companies put in your portfolio. Whereas if you actually own a share, even if it's just one or two shares, now you feel ownership. You feel like you're incentivized to actually research these more and decide if you want to allocate more of your portfolio to it or if you should sell the small stake that you take, that you already took. And you couldn't really do that before because say 
you were going to buy a couple of shares of a company at 50 bucks a share and you had to pay a $5 commission, there goes 10% of your you know, the money you invested. Now you have a huge hurdle to get over just to even be profitable on that one trade. So it just didn't really make sense. But now you can do that. Uh, in terms of other like less sophisticated investors, I guess you could say, I think you're seeing a lot of people try and trade more because now they don't have commissions. I think you're seeing that help Robinhood. I think you see a lot of millennials and younger investors that are trying to just day trade and things like that. Unfortunately, I think you're seeing a lot of people get into options trading, which just don't have the education for it and don't really fully understand what they're doing. So I think those are really the two big components that you're seeing. Yeah. And those are usually top indicators too. When you have day traders flooding markets, it happened in 99. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you talk about Robinhood too. That is probably millennials favorite app of choice for investing. And it's mostly trading, which the, increase in trading also coincided with the pandemic. So it's tough to say whether or not it was free trades or people at home with nothing to gamble on. You can't bet on sports because there's no sports. So many contributors, I think, to the increase in trading. But I don't know that there are any studies to confirm whether or not it's more pandemic or more free trading. I don't think we'll ever know for sure, but I think it was more the pandemic than free trading. How old are you? 25. If you get to be 30 and you haven't beaten the market, because I know you invest in a lot of individual stocks, would you then consider shifting more to index funds and ETFs versus what you're doing now in in picking individual stocks? I already have a lot of my portfolio in, in ETFs. So I, I don't know the exact percentage. I think I'm probably about 50-50 right now, maybe 60-40. So I'm pretty evenly split. I guess I would maybe consider it. But again, that's really only five years from now. You need a longer time horizon to really let the market play out over a long enough time to say whether you're skilled or not at it. That's kind of the benefit or the downside because if you end up not being good at it and you can't beat the market, then you just wasted 10 years where you could have just earned the market returns. Whereas so it's just a, a really long time to wait and see if you're actually good at it. I probably will always stay between 50 and 60% ETFs, my guess. And your starting point was what age when you started doing this? I started studying it when I was 14. I probably didn't actually start like really investing until I was 17 or 18. Wow. No wonder you like Buff- Buffett so much. He started really young too. Yeah. So I, I opened... So funny story. When I was... I was, I, I kind of just got lucky on this, but basically, I'm, like I said, I'm the first one in my family to ever go to college. So I had to figure out a way to pay for this. And so I needed to find the most high paying job I could that had good hours that allowed me to stay local. And so it just happened to be a bank teller at a local bank here. They had, they gave me benefits because I worked enough hours, which included tuition reimbursement. I got paid well and the schedule allowed me to take my classes on campus. So it all just kind of really worked well. But I ended up getting promoted and, and doing a couple other things. But part of that was they had a 401k. And I was living at home, so I didn't really have a lot of expenses. I was putting like 70% of my my income into my 401k. So I was 18 years old and I had a 401k that I was putting like 70% of my income into. So that's really when I started investing the most was when I was 18 with my 401k. Dude, my investing history goes back so far to where when I was a kid playing Monopoly, I would hide Monopoly money from myself in the hopes of finding it later. 
And I did this with all sorts of things. I would do it with packs of baseball cards. I wouldn't open them and then I'd hide them and then hope that two or three years later, they would be worth more when I opened them. Uh, Of course, the monopoly money doesn't increase in value, but it it sure feels like free money later when you find it, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's funny. (laughs) This whole delayed gratification thing, I kind of have been forcing on myself for a long time. Have you ever considered investing in ServiceNow or Snowflake? No. Neither one, huh? I've never heard of ServiceNow. uh, And I have heard of Snowflake very recently. I don't know anything about it. I just know that the IPO has been crazy. Uh, But that's it. I don't really know much else about it. Yeah. The reason I bring up ServiceNow is because of Austin Lieberman's guest appearance on your podcast. He was talking about enterprise software in a way that told me that he probably hasn't been inside enterprise software companies. That's sort of my background. So ServiceNow is a, is a product that I competed with when I was selling IT service management software. And they're sort of like a Google of the space. Very hard to beat if you're selling a competing product. And I say Google because Google's almost become like a verb. And the way that people talk about ServiceNow, it's, it's like the default that you would use if you were talking about a search. Well, if you were talking about IT service management, you would talk about ServiceNow. Anyway, I bring that up because I hear you talking about companies like Datadog. There are a lot of tech stocks that you hear mentioned on Twitter or see mentioned on Twitter, but ServiceNow isn't one of them. And and that always surprises me because it's one of those that's really, really taken off. And if you have any sort of insider information like competed against them, you know that they're just, their software is awesome. It's, it's, It's also in a lot of Fortune 500 companies. And so... If your accounts are Fortune 500, which a few of mine were, it was like that erases a lot of your potential commission income because they're already embedded. They're married to the ServiceNow software and they're going to be in there a long time. So anyway, I was just curious about that. And then, of course, Snowflake with the Warren Buffett buying 250 million shares at the IPO price of 120, I thought, I'll bet you Robert knows something about that. Of course, it probably wasn't him, right? It was probably one of his mentees. Yeah, no, I hadn't even heard that he bought any of Snowflake. I haven't heard that. I, I just know that they had a crazy IPO. That's really all I knew. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, it's kind of funny. Um, I haven't really been following the markets too, too closely. I, I have a good portfolio invested. I really like the positions I have. And so I've kind of just left it. You know, people on the on Twitter, FinTwit all the time talk about how often they check their portfolio. And you know, I joke and say, I haven't checked mine in a couple months. Like, what's going on? You know, and that's the honest truth. I'm not saying that to like, kid, I'm, I'm really serious because I invest for the long term and I believe in the companies that I invest in. I don't really make speculative trades. So I really haven't followed it that much. I really haven't followed the markets too, too closely. I'm building a business, right? We're building the podcast business. I'm trying to do all these different things. We have a bunch of different initiatives going on. So that's really where my focus is. And sometimes I have a dynamic that I'm battling because it's like, do I study investing? Because that's what one of the things I'm passionate about, or do I study topics that are going to grow the business. And so I'm, you know, I'm working with Stig at, at the Investors Podcast to help us really work on our SEO. And so it's, do I invest my time to learn SEO better and become better at that to help our business grow, or do I study investing? And so it's a dynamic that I've been battling, but I've been focusing more on just, you know, learning skills for growing online businesses more than investing. So no, I, I hadn't even heard that about about Snowflake. Uh, the one thing I would say about ServiceNow, though, is one, oh, actually two things. One is how big is the company? And two, you would probably be a great enterprise software investor because you have the ins and outs of, of this. You know, As Peter Lynch would say, 
you can invest in companies that you know better than other people because you have that inside scoop. So if you ever want to pick individual stocks, that might be a good place for you personally to look. I, I have had a lot of success picking individual stocks. And it's simply by paying attention to what's going on around me during the workday. So like Salesforce, or I sold a, a product that was a performance monitoring solution for Microsoft SQL Server. SQL Server is just one product of many of Microsoft's billion-dollar products. And so when you contact a prospective customer, they would let you know if they're using their native tools or not, the Microsoft native tools, or if they have a budget for a solution like a performance monitoring solution or something for backup and recovery or security and compliance. And that's where we would come in. So having the perspective of, or this experience, this life experience of working at a company that was able to grow very rapidly and was acquired after, I don't know, eight or 10 years. Of course, the replication of software makes people millions. The marginal cost is, is none, is nil, right? So anyway, I like hearing you say that you're focused on the podcast and the business and building skill sets and focusing on earned income. That's exactly what I did. All the companies that I just mentioned that I started investing in when I was young, like Salesforce and Microsoft, just by paying attention to what was going on around me, those were doing nothing or seemed to be doing nothing for a long time. That's how compounding works. You kind of set it and forget it. It seems like it's doing nothing. And then all of a sudden, six, seven, eight years later, it's like, holy shit. You know, it, it happens gradually for a while. And then boom, it just takes off. I mean, that's how compounding is. So I encourage young people, focus on your earned income now, building skill sets. Let the other stuff take care of itself. Eventually, it's just going to boom one day and you're just going to wake up and be like, oh my God, how did I 10x my money? But that's compounding. So, Just because I'm not looking at it doesn't mean it's not growing. You know, I didn't uninvest it. It doesn't mean it's sitting in cash doing nothing. It's still there. It's still invested. I just I'm not watching the market as closely as I used to because I don't need to add any new positions right now. I'm really agnostic, right? As an investor, I want to earn the best return I can. I think that's everybody's goal, right? And being entrepreneurial, I think you can argue that operational business returns that you can receive are you can't match in the in the stock market. You know, I'm up my best position Zoom right now. I I just happened to buy Zoom in back in October or November. And I'm up like 900% or something ridiculous in a pretty short period of time, not even a year. You, that, that'll get dwarfed from what you can earn in an operational business. And it doesn't have to be a podcast. It can be anything. You know, you invest 100 bucks and go buy a snowblower and then you snowblow 50 yards this winter and you make 10 grand. You know, what's 10,000 on 100? That's a lot of money. Your return is, you know, you can't beat that. And so Preston Pish really talked to me about this. He said, you know, I'm a, I'm a stock investor. I love that. But if I have money that I'm going to allocate, you need to think about your portfolio and allocate it where you're going to earn the best return. Are you going to invest it in an operational business and you're going to get your best return there? Or are you going to do it in the stock market? And so for me, I think I'm just going to see better returns in my operational businesses that I have going on, whether it be real estate or the podcast, than I'm going to see in the market, especially at today's valuations. I'm glad you mentioned Zoom because I'm an investor in Zoom. And I'm not recommending it, but I purchased it very early on. And the reason is because I was using it for my podcast. Everybody else seemed to be using it for their podcast. People talked about using it at work. 
that's where it starts for me. And then you start investigating the company and finding out, do the employees like work in there? Look at their financials. You know, you can do a little research, but for me, it starts with, do you use it? Do you like it? If we just invested in things that we use and like, like Costco, Lululemon, all these different things that we use, if you want to diversify, think about what you eat, think about what you use to keep up with your customers, what you use to do web conferencing, et cetera. And I think people just try to overcomplicate things, but Zoom is like the perfect example. Even in March, I had a friend of mine who's over 65. I messaged you about this. He was asking me to pick stocks for him. And Zoom is one of the ones that I picked. And like you making 400%, 900%, he's in the same boat making a, a killing Uh, But he just took a small percentage of his net worth, and I always advocate never more than 10%. I picked some companies for him that I thought had a lot of upside with with minimal downside risk. I don't even get into, like, what's their moat? Moats can be destroyed very easily, in my opinion. I asked you whether or not he should sell his Delta Airlines position because Warren Buffett had just sold all of his airline stocks. And you gave me a very astute answer. Do you remember what you told me? Vaguely, vaguely. Okay, I'll tell you what you told me because it was awesome. I said, would you sell? Warren Buffett just sold a whole bunch yesterday. I think he sold all of his Delta Airlines stocks. You said maybe, but not necessarily for a few reasons. One, nobody knows why he sold. Two, No one knows if it was even him selling. It could have been his mentees, Todd Todd or Ted. Three, yes, he sold 13 million shares, but he still has like 60 million shares. I don't know. Did he sell out completely? I'm not sure. He has now, but at that point, I don't think he had. Okay. Another reason you gave me was there's a lot of regulation that comes with owning more than 10% of a publicly traded company. With the airlines selling off so much, there was a good chance that he'd own more than 10% of Delta Airlines, which he likely doesn't want to do. Another thing you said, he could just have better use for that money. He could be using it to offset other gains, or he could just have a better place for that money. And then you told me, and you emphasize this, I never buy or sell based on anyone else's activity, including Buffett, who you, there's nobody in this world you admire more than Warren Buffett but not even you will buy or sell based on what he's doing. You said no one knows his thesis, if it's even his, his conviction, his risk tolerance, or his overall situation. The same goes for any other great investors. So all of that said, you said, I'm staying away from it. And I was just so impressed with your analysis there. Well, thank you. Yeah, I do remember that now. And that sounds like something I would say. What about cruise companies and oil and gas and all these companies that have just been battered lately? How do you think about investing in those? Is this opportunity? I don't. <laughs> I don't think about it, honestly. Uh, you know, I get that question a lot. And people ask me when, when everything crashed, they saw Carnival Cruise Lines was down 80, 90%. They said, Are you jumping in? I said, No way. You know, I said, You could. You know, that's just not how I invest. You know, I told my brother not to invest in Tesla at 200. Well, let me take that back. I told him I wouldn't invest in Tesla at 200. Because he reached out to me and said, should I invest in Tesla? And I said, you can if you want. I said, I wouldn't personally. That's not how I invest. And I think the reason for that is, is you need to, you have one set of capital, right? You can't have your capital in multiple 
position. Like this, you can't have the same dollar in multiple stocks. So you need to think about what is the best use for that dollar. You're not investing in a in a vacuum. And so, yeah, maybe you could get good returns in these various positions, but is that really optimal? You know, you're there's an opportunity cost here. And so, for me, the way I think about it, and the way I explained it to these people when they're asking about Carnival Cruise Lines, I said I have a thousand dollars to invest. Would I rather put this in a company? that is failing and they need a bailout from the federal government to be able to continue as a going concern? Or would I rather invest this money in a company that produces extremely high amounts of cash flow, strong management teams, great financials, they're reinvesting in their business right now, and they're generating more cash than they know what to do with. And in this example, I'm speaking of MasterCard. So if I have $1,000, would I rather invest in MasterCard or Carnival Cruise Lines? And for me, that's a very simple simple answer. And maybe I left a little bit of money on the table. Maybe I didn't, but you know, I haven't stressed one bit. I put that money in MasterCard and I haven't looked at it in six months and I know it's done well. And those people that watch or trade, you know, Carnival Cruise Lines, maybe it's gone up, maybe it hasn't, but you're stressing about it now. You're worrying and you're watching it every day. And that's just not what I'm looking to do. I don't think many people do that postmortem where they look back and say, oh, if I had done this 10 years ago, my return would have been 9.2 versus 8.67. I just, it's like paying cash for real estate. I don't ever regret paying cash for real estate because if I had put it in the S&P 500, there's been a 280% return, but I got maybe a 220% return on my paid for real estate. People just don't think that way. And so the fear that you're going to think that way, I think pressures people to overcomplicate, overanalyze, act too much when they should be sitting on their hands. Did you change anything about your investing strategy in March or April? None. None. And you know what? In reality, if you bought Carnival Cruise Lines at the bottom and you sold towards the top, you made a good trade. That is the reality of it. I didn't think of it that way. And then I had a gentleman on my podcast called Matt. uh, His name is Matthew Pippenberg. And he made me realize that. And you know what? He's right. That is a good trade. That's not a good trade to me. That's not a trade that I would make because I don't trade. I invest. But that is a good trade. And maybe it's risky, maybe it's not, but that is a good trade because you can make 80% in, in three months, if that. So some people would consider that a trade. It's just not the right one for me. I like to, be, I like to keep my investing simple. I know it, it works. I know it'll do well over the long term. And so that's, that's what I'm doing. I haven't changed my strategy at all. I was unfortunately giving up some returns over the last year before COVID. So I was sitting on a lot of cash, not necessarily in dollar amount, but in terms of percentage of my portfolio. I was in maybe like 80% cash for like a year before COVID hit, which if you look at the S&P, I left a lot of money on the table. But when COVID came in March, I deployed all of that. I have like 5% cash now, maybe 3% cash, if that. And so was it, did I know COVID was coming? No way. Nobody did. You know? and, but did I know something was coming? Absolutely. You know, There's a business cycle that we've been in for 10 years on average. They last about 10 years. So there's something coming. You know, there's an economic or credit or some sort of market cycle that's going to happen. And there's going to be a correction in prices. I didn't expect it to be a a global health pandemic, but there's going to be something coming. I was prepared for it and I deployed my capital at the right time. And and now I'll just sit back and continue to grow my cash position and then do the same thing again when opportunities present itself. And I'm going to butcher their quote, but there's a, a Warren Buffett quote that I absolutely love that he put in, I think his 2016 shareholders letter, might've been 2017. But he said something along the lines of, when the economic skies get gray, we want to be sure to run outside with a wash tub, not a thimble. 
And that's pretty much what I try to do as well. Wow. So you weren't even planning to dollar cost average through COVID. You you got to March and said, 80% of my wealth is in cash. I'm going to deploy all of it now. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I did. I did something similar in, I want to say, late 2018, uh, Brexit. Uh, the, the, the crash wasn't as bad. It wasn't as severe, but there was some big, big sell-offs back in, in the US markets even. And I, I deployed a lot of capital then. I had a lot of cash. And again, I was, I was sitting on returns. Or I was sitting on the sidelines and giving up some returns, but I waited until the market gave me valuations that I wanted. So you are a fan of keeping cash on the sidelines for when there's blood in the streets. You'll probably be 100%. doing that the rest of your life. Okay. 100%. Because what people need to realize is maybe I'm going to underperform this year. Maybe I'm going to underperform next year and the year after. But if you do well enough in that fifth year, say, that, and then you average that out over five years, you can still beat the market. So you don't have to beat them. I think there's a misconception. You don't beat the market every year. You beat the market overall throughout that period. So you could have 0% returns for five years, even if the market's going up, but then you have a year where you make 300% over five years, that's a great return and you still beat the market. So that's kind of how you got to think about it. I'm not worried about tracking or chasing or beating the market every year. I want to beat it on average over 10, 15, 30 years. And I know you have a young son. At what age will you begin teaching him about money? I'm not sure yet. He has money set aside for him. But I don't know when when I'll start teaching him about that. Are you planning to pay for his college? No. I don't know if he'll go to college, and that's why I don't. I don't have his money in a in a college plan. I have it in just a traditional brokerage account for him uh, because I don't know if he's going to go to college. If I if I could go back and do it again, I have two degrees and an accounting license, a pretty sought, sought after one, if I must say, and I wouldn't do it again. I could go back and I would not go to college again. Because so, you're not using it? Not using and it at all. you would prefer to have an additional four years of experience of yep. reading and studying and talking to successful people? I'd rather have no student loan debt and go back and start something from scratch uh, back then. And, and the way we're going now, I don't know if college is going to be a thing in 16 years when he's going to go to college. I, I would be Honestly, I would be surprised if it is. And so I don't want to lock that money up and count like that. So I don't know. I might not even need to pay for his college. He might not either. You share your portfolio with the world, don't you? How yeah. could we find it and take a look at it? So I pretty much just share it on Twitter from time to time. I'll share at various times. You know, honestly, like I said, I don't look at it that much. I don't share it super frequently. Maybe quarterly at the end of the quarter, I'll share it, but it doesn't change that much. Um, I actually am working with, there's a company called Common Stock. I don't have a lot of details on it yet. It's very, very early on, but it's a platform that allows you to show your investment transactions as well as a social media component. If you follow Austin Lieberman, you might have heard of it. Uh, but they're bringing me on to help kind of build out the portfolio or the platform and kind of get people engaged on it. And so you might be able to see my trades and, and investments there as well. Do you have a day job or, or is your... You do? Yeah, okay. I do. I do. What do you do? I am account? a corporate finance manager. Okay. Busy. Very, very busy. So I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have time for some fun questions before you cut out? Let's do it. Okay, social media, net positive or net negative for society? Negative. Why? Because most people on the net waste time and waste energy and brain cells and mostly time on it. And I'm trying to change that with social media. I'm trying to provide value so that people actually can use it as an educational resource and gain value from it. 
Uh, but I wasn't on social media for a very long time because that exact reason. I didn't think it provided any value and I think it's a time waster. If you could wake up tomorrow with any number of Twitter followers, how many would you choose and why? As many as possible. Really? So you'd want a Trump level following. Like I think he has 86 million followers. Yep. Wow. How much time per day do you spend on Twitter? Do you think? None. Zero. <laughs> not, not much. Do you find that the, the highest correlate between a large Twitter following, if you're not already famous is time spent on Twitter? Yes. And only because yeah, time spent on Twitter, but also activity. If you're not, you know, assuming you're not already a public figure, yeah. I mean, you just have to be active. That's how I notice the more active I am, the more followers I get. The less active I am, the less followers I get. And it makes sense. So then aren't you tempted to spend more time on there to grow your business? Absolutely. I just don't make it a priority. I have higher priorities in, in life and in business. Where did you go to school to get your degrees? Uh, UMass. UMass. And how far is that from you where you live today? 30 minutes. What kind of car do you drive? Currently, I have two vehicles. I have a Chevy Colorado pickup truck to haul my dirt bikes, and I have a Ford Fusion. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? Oh, man. Uh, I would buy two or three dirt bikes, a truck, a Lamborghini, invest probably the rest. So the two to three dirt bikes, Lamborghini, truck, how much would that cost you? Two, the three dirt bikes would be 15 grand total. Lamborghini probably be 100,000. And the truck's probably 60. So we're all in 175 probably. A Lamborghini with a million dollars. I would bet that you wouldn't buy a Lamborghini if you had a million dollars. I mean, if you had a, a million dollars handed to you, because I know when you're my age, you will have an extra million dollars and I don't see you buying a Lamborghini, but I could be wrong. I think you're wrong. And the only reason <laughs> I think you're, the reason I think you're wrong is because one of my biggest goals my entire life has been to own a supercar. Mm. Maybe, maybe not, maybe it won't be a Lamborghini. So maybe technically you'll be right. Maybe it'll be a Ferrari or maybe it'll be something else, but I'm a big motor guy. I've just always liked cars. I don't really care about having a mansion or, you know, the fanciest watch or clothes, really. I just, I really like cars. I really want to have a supercar. Um, that's it, really. So I, th I think I probably will someday, but. Okay, so I had a poster of a Lamborghini on my wall when I was a kid. And even as a young professional, I was going to drive a fancy car. But I told myself that it had to be covered by passive income. I couldn't spend earned income on it. And once I had the passive income to cover what would be Lamborghini payments, there's no way I was willing to do that. So and I might get to goal. that point. Yeah, you know what? I might, maybe, maybe I get married, I have a nice house and I, you know, whatever's going on, I'm like, you know, who needs it? You know, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. Okay, how about this? If you were given $100,000 tomorrow and forced to invest it in three companies, Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, how would you allocate those funds? 80K Amazon, 20K Apple. No Tesla. I like it. Zero. If I could, no, definitely no Tesla. If you were given $100,000, again, and forced to bet on which presidential candidate Donald Trump or Joe Biden would win your state of New Hampshire, 
each pays even money. So you'd put up 100,000 to win 100,000. Which one would you put your money on? Honestly, I don't know anything about politics. I don't know anything about the New Hampshire politic. Uh, I don't know if we de- tend to fall Democratic, Republican. I, I truly don't know. So I don't know. You know, I don't think I can make an educated bet and say, this is what I think my state would do. Because if we're Republican, I don't want to say Democrat and vice versa. I just honestly, I truly don't know anything about politics. I see a lot of people on Twitter posting whether or not they see signs in yards around their house. And I think since I follow a lot of investors, what they're doing is giving people information so that they can go to predictit.org and make bets on those states as to which candidate is going to win. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know anything really about gambling. I, I like to play. I like to gamble at like casinos, but I don't know like money lines and things like that. I don't, I still don't even really understand that. <laughs> well, I think that's a decision that will compound well for you too, 10, 20 years down the road. So I like to play this little game called overrated, underrated. I'm going to give you a name and you tell me if they're overrated or underrated. All right. Mark Cuban. Underrated. Anthony Pompliano. Actually, you know what? Mark Cuban, overrated. Uh, <laughs> Anthony Pompliano, underrated. Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Underrated. Jim O'Shaughnessy. I don't really know him that well. Um, That's so. his dad. Yeah, yeah, I knew that, but I don't, I don't know him that well, so I can't say either way. Peter Schiff. Overrated. <laughs> Tim Ferriss. Overrated. Dave Portnoy. Funny, but overrated. Uh, Joe Rogan. Way overrated. Jordan <laughs> Peterson. Overrated. Mm. What's your favorite podcast? Bigger Pockets. Really? Is that how we met? Yeah, I think so. And honestly, I haven't even been listening to it too much lately. You know, I, I want to say my favorite podcast is We Study Billionaires, but I didn't want to say that because it's part of... I'm affiliated with it now. But take that out of it. That's my favorite. But non-TIP related podcasts, I'd say Bigger Pockets. I like Bigger Pockets too. I tend to listen to the episodes that aren't real estate related because I feel as though I've done what I wanted to do in real estate. So I'm looking for something else. And they asked me a question about what my favorite business books were. And a few of them that I mentioned were Mastery by Robert Greene and The 48 Laws of Power. And I noticed they had Robert Greene on as a guest, maybe five or six episodes after mine. And I loved it. Every interview he does, every book he puts out, everything he writes, I'm all over it. I just love that stuff. Are you a fan of Robert Greene? Yeah, I'll let you know when I have him on my podcast. Wonderful. Yes, please. I will promote it to all of my uh, social media following and um, get off as soon as I do because I don't like to spend a lot of time on it either. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you for coming on the show. You were as good as I expected. Great conversation. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Look forward to doing it again. All right, buddy. Take care. There you have it. Robert Leonard, everybody. You can find him on Instagram at the Robert Leonard, or you can listen to him hosting Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. He also hosts Real Estate Investing, also of the Investors Podcast Network. Always good to speak with a young guy doing big things. Can you imagine all that he's learning with the brilliant minds he gets to interact with regularly? You heard him say that he's improved his podcasting since he started and become a better communicator. I think 
I'm getting some of that too. At least I hope so. Hopefully you can tell. I think you get better as you build your curiosity and relax a little more, learn to ask more open-ended questions, more how and why questions, and then just improve your listening skills. There's nothing worse than a podcaster who asks a question, gets a great answer, and then says, got it, and then just moves on to the next question. (laughs) It bothers all of us. There are lots of similarities between sales and podcasting. Maybe more salespeople should be podcast hosts. The problem is if you're a good salesperson, then you're making too much money to make a career switch at this point. Friends, if you enjoyed this episode with Robert, please copy the link and share it with a friend. A few of you have left reviews on Apple Podcasts recently, and I can't tell you how much that means to me. If you're doing that, means more people will tap the play button and hopefully get to learn some of the same things that you and I have learned and apply it to our lives. If you left a review, be on the lookout for a cool little thank you coming your way in the mail. I'll always do that. We enjoy shopping for little gifts wherever we are in the world and walking to the post office. So please leave a review if you haven't already. And if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. Thank you.